0: Uh, Last Sunday we looked at Paul's first set of instructions to the Galatians, and really all Christians, because the Word of God is written to all Christians, Um, and his instructions last week, they dealt with how to keep in step with the Spirit, and the context is restoring a sinning brother or sister. And do you remember the the first set of instructions that we went through? Uh, Quickly, we Keep in step with the Spirit when we self-check and make sure that we are not led by our flesh. That was chapter 5, verse 26. So when going to a sinning brother or sister, the first thing you do is is self-check and make sure that, you know, hey, I'm not being led by my flesh. I'm I'm in step with the Spirit so I can go and do this in a way that glorifies God and is helpful to the person. Secondly, we keep in step with the Spirit when we gently restore a sinning brother. That was chapter 6, verse 1a. The key there is being gentle with those who are in sin, not coming at them hard. The third was, we keep in step with the Spirit when we remain watchful and don't lose sight of our own struggle with temptation and sin. And that was chapter 6, verse 1b. So, having a Sober mind and having um, going into a counseling kind of setting or correction correctional kind of situation, while having a knowledge of your own weakness is very important. That way, that's going to soften you, make you more empathetic, more sympathetic toward the sinning brother. And then, lastly, we keep in step with the Spirit when we bear one another's burdens. That was chapter six, verse two. And the bearing of burdens there has to do with the burden that sin creates. If you correct a brother or sister and their sin has caused some level of damage, strained relationships or whatever, the bearing of the burden has to do with helping them get back on their feet and dealing with those, those issues and repairing the damage and that sort of stuff. So, what Paul is essentially saying is it's not enough for us just to go and correct. We have to be ready to walk people through a process of restoration. And, but I think we're all really good at correcting one another more so than we are at actually helping people get back to where they should be or fixing relationships. So, right, you, 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 well, if you do this, you also need to do this and take their hand and walk them through it. So, um, that's what he was talking about in the first set of instructions. And this morning, we'll look at the second set of instructions. Uh, There's really two sets here. So, take your Bibles and turn over to Galatians. We'll be looking at the text that Bruce just read chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. That's where we find the rest of them. There are four more. Let's begin where we left off, and that would be with Paul's fifth point. Number five, we keep in step with the Spirit when we remain humbly aware of our own need of grace. So this is kind of like one of the previous points of being aware of your temptations and and struggles and this sort of thing, so you can be humble and soft and gentle with others. But here, the emphasis is on your own need of grace, and we see this in verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I mean, you can just tell that that verse right there is just dripping and oozing with humility. The idea of being humble enough to recognize your own need of grace as you go to correct. This is monumentally important It might be one of the most important steps or one of the most important instructions here. The Holy Spirit produces Christ-like humility in believers. It's not that He attempts to do that, it's not that He tries to do that, that is it's not a fruit that's listed in Galatians 5, but it is a fruit that is bore in the life of the believer. The believer, the true believer, is going to have Christ-like humility. And, you know, it's something that, we, uh, that battles, the Spirit battles with our flesh over this because the flesh is prideful and it's not humble, but this is a quality that's going to be present in the person who has the Spirit. We think of, of Jesus, He humbled Himself. Uh, you're thinking God here stepping out of, out of heaven to come down to here. You have this, um, that's a, an ultimate example of humility, right? The condescension of Christ. And so he humbles himself, becomes a, a man, and then he humbles himself again by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, which was the most despicable form of death in that day. Uh, Philippians 2.8 is where it speaks of this. So we see the humility of Christ in Christ and in Scripture, and the Spirit brings this kind of same humility in the life of the true believer. Believers are empowered by the Spirit to model this same humility. Now, we don't often model it perfectly, but it's there, and we should model it, especially when we're dealing with others, especially when we're dealing with people. The, the greatest time for humility in, in our lives is when we're interacting with others, especially when we're correcting, especially when we're admonishing, even having to rebuke because sometimes, you know, whatever the person's done, it needs a rebuke, a loving rebuke. But there's no greater time or opportunity for humility when you're dealing with others, especially in a correction kind of situation. One of the things that we are to do even as we go to gently restore and correct. One of the things that we're supposed to do in that moment, okay, yes, being aware of the need of grace, but literally even counting that sinning brother or sister as better than you. See, what happens, the impulse of the flesh is that when you find a brother or sister in sin, the impulse of the flesh is to think that you're better than them. Well, I don't do that. I've done things, but I don't do that. See, that's the impulse of the flesh. And so, even in a scenario of correction, you have to humble yourself. As Christ humbly took on the cross, you have to humble yourself and think of them as greater than you, which is not an easy thing to do, but it's something that we must do. Philippians 2.3 speaks to this. In fact, chapter 2 is just wonderful. It talks about the humility of Christ, and it talks about the humility of the believer. But as I said, the flesh, it produces the opposite in us, doesn't it? it produces pride. It produces conceit. Especially when we learn about sin in other believers. I said it last week, but the flesh, our flesh views sin in others as opportunities for self-exaltation and self-distraction, right? Well, when somebody else is sinning and you find out about it, you quickly forget about your own sin or your own struggle or anything that's going on with you, Sometimes you exalt yourself by saying things like, well, at least I don't do that. I'm not like the tax collector, so to speak, like the Pharisee. Or you just get thoroughly distracted from your own sin or your own culpability. The flesh produces an opposite response in us. It produces conceit and conceit produces a sense of superiority which skews our view and, and causes us really essentially to exalt ourselves and to look down on others, even to the point, and I know that you, this is going to resonate you, resonate with you, conceit produces a sense of superiority to the point that we find out about somebody's sin and then we want to disconnect from them. We don't want to go to them at all. We begin to see them as the leper with the sign, unclean, unclean. Amen? You never felt that way? I really can't have anything to do with Fred. There's no Freds in here, right? Fred's like, oh, man, he's on me again. I use, I've been using Fred since I started in ministry almost 15 years ago, and I don't think I've ever had a Fred come up and say, dude, why did you tell him my secrets? But seriously, it, it can produce in us a kind of, detachment syndrome, where we feel the need to detach from that bad, sinful person, that bad, sinful believer. It can produce this sort of avoidance. You hear what Fred did? Can you believe that? I can't be around someone who sins like that. this This is the flesh and the conceit of the flesh, and if you know anything about the Gospels, you know that there was a group of super pious religious people who did that exact thing, and that was the Pharisees. The Pharisees would go around and they would avoid all of the sinful people in Israel, which means they pretty much had to avoid everybody except themselves. But they literally did this, they had detachment syndrome. They thought that even being by someone, it wouldn't lead them to sin like they were weak in their flesh. It would just make them look really, really bad. Well, I can't be associated with that kind of person because that's going to tarnish my reputation. That's the conceit-driven, fleshly kind of response to others' sinning. The Pharisees avoided sinners, and they even criticized Jesus for spending time with such people, right? While Jesus was eating at Matthew the tax collector's house. And being a tax collector was probably the worst thing you could do as a Jew because you were essentially working for Rome. You were treasonous in the Jewish eyes. But he dines with Matthew who became an apostle and he's over at his house eating and the Pharisees are outside the door complaining to the other disciples. And they're saying things like, why does your teacher, speaking of Jesus, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he associate with those sorts of people and those types of people, Matthew 9, verses 10 and 11? That is the detachment syndrome that comes from an inflated view of self and conceit. Now, I'm not saying, well, then I guess I counter this with going to the next bar I drive by and hanging out there all day while people are swirling whiskey around in their mouths. I'm not promoting that. I'm just saying that When you find out about sin in a brother or sister, it has the ability to raise us up to this point of -of out-of-bounds self-awareness, and I can't even be around that person. This is what happens. Are we supposed to be disconnecting from brothers and sisters who stumble into sin, or are we to be gently restoring them? According to the text, gentle restoration, not de- attachment don't be a, it's very pharisaical if we take the pharisaical route i can't have anything to do with them i'm not contacting them anymore we have to be careful there and really what paul is saying here is does this exist in us do we have this view of ourselves this high view when in fact we are absolutely nothing speaking of being outside of grace or christ we are absolutely nothing and even in christ we are absolutely nothing it's all christ amen He says the believer who thinks he's something is conceited, and on the end of that sentence there, he says that he is self-deceived. He's self-deceived. In other words, he is led by his flesh, and he has a corrupted view of himself and a corrupted view of others. Ultimately, he thinks he's better than most people, and he's pretty much always looking down on others. And you can hear it come through the speech are always degrading and talking down on others and, and, you know, inflating and exalting self over others. And, and sometimes in self-righteousness, this conceited person just totally detaches himself from sinful people. He does not desire to help a sinning brother, but to judge and condemn him or her. He says to himself, and you know this one, well, Fred got himself into this mess. He needs to get himself out. That is a conceited, self-saturated, selfish approach to anything. It's not the way of Christ. It's not the way of the Spirit. If If you behave like this with people, you're out of step. This person's fleshly conceit will keep them. They're either really critical of this sinful brother or it keeps them altogether from restoring them and they just don't go to them at all. You know, their sin disqualifies my interaction with that person. And I'll just say this, this person who's led by their flesh, this person who's conceited, has a self-inflated view, has the detachment syndrome and all of this goody-two-shoe kind of fleshly stuff, they really have no business restoring others. So if they choose to disconnect, that's probably a blessing to the person that they would have gone to, right? Right? A person that is so self-inflated and and, and prideful and conceited, it's not going to handle others well at all. They're not going to be gentle. They're not mindful of their own need of grace by any stretch of the meaning of that, right? A conceited person doesn't understand their own need of grace. The Pharisees never understood their need of grace. There was a handful, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, but for the most part, that whole group was lost. So, this person that that reacts this way to sinning brothers and sisters, there's the conceit and the the disconnect or the detachment and the kind of judgment and self exaltation. This person does not need to be going to any other brothers and sisters and trying to restore them. They need to deal with their own log in their own eye, which is obviously pride, which is something that we all wrestle with at times. Jesus. Again, says in Matthew 7, 5, you know, take the log out of your own eye before you try to remove the speck from your brother or sister. Really, this entire text has to do with just doing an internal check to see where we're at and what we're like in dealing with people, especially when they're in sin. But, you know, the thing is, is that these sorts of people that are like Pharisee-level prideful they're self-deceived. So, when you bring some of these things gently to their attention, they totally deny them. They don't think they're prideful. Uh, They they don't, you know, they would never admit to that. That's the scary and terrifying thing about it. That's why Paul talks about how they're self-deceived. They're self-deceived to the point that, you know, you say, well, wow, you're going to go correct so-and-so. Don't you think you ought to kind of check yourself before you do any of that? Oh, I don't, I don't have a problem here. Well, you kind of do, and let me try to help you understand. Well, no, that, that, you're misunderstanding. That's not pride. That's not self-value. I know I need grace. You don't speak like someone who needs grace. Yeah, but I know I, you know, that, there's a denial. There's a deflection there. This is another work of the flesh. Remember, self-distraction keeps you from seeing your own foibles in your own sinfulness, your own pride. So these people, they don't, they're deceived and they're very, very hard to correct. Uh, fleshly conceit diminishes our awareness and ability to recognize our own needs, especially the need of grace. Pride doesn't need grace. Pride is self-sufficient. You know, the flesh can do whatever it wants, it doesn't need help. And yet Paul kind of juxtaposes here, you know, the believer who knows he is nothing, right? He says that, the believer who knows he is nothing, that person is is humbly aware of their need of grace, and they are actually in step with the Spirit. He's actually, or she is actually spiritual. Remember he talks about that? You need to be a spiritual person to go and gently restore. Spiritual meaning you need to be walking in the Spirit, you need to be in step with the Spirit. You need to have the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 1A. That man or woman, they're the opposite of this other one that Paul is talking about. That person's aware of their need of grace, they're in step with the Spirit, they're spiritual. They are the ones that are qualified to restore, gently restore brother or sister who's in sin. Only that person's qualified to do it. Paul's basically saying if you're conceited and their sin bugs you to the point of you wanting to disconnect, deal with you first don't go to them. You're the one with the problem right now. So, Now, let's just create a scenario for us. Let's say that two different believers catch you in a transgression. That's the language he uses at the beginning of this chapter, a sin. That's what transgression means. You got two believers who are, who are made aware of a sin that you are involved with One is fleshly and conceited. He thinks he is something. And you know this because this isn't a person that all of a sudden starts acting like they're something. It's a trademark of prideful people. Everyone knows that they think they're something. And from time to time, everyone says so. Well, you know, Fred, I tell you what, man, if his head got any bigger, they'd put him on the Macy's Day Parade, you know? right? Everyone knows this person because prideful people, they can't hide any of it. So let's just say you got two people that come to you over your transgression. One thinks he is something, right? And then the other believer, and he's completely different or she's completely different. They're very humble and uh, they clearly seem to know that they are nothing apart from Christ, nothing apart from grace. There's just a a humility and a gentleness about them, right? So you've got the, hey man, I think I'm something. You got the one who goes, I'm nothing. I'm a turd, right? Which one would you prefer to deal with in a situation like this? No one in their right mind would pick the one who thinks he's something, right? Unless you think you're something, and that person's pride is going to somehow, you know, build up your pride. This is a, I don't mean to be harsh here, and this is a struggle, I think, for all of us. but if people aren't coming to you for counsel at times or for help, maybe you need to ask why. And maybe it's not because of them. Maybe it's because of the way you carry yourself. Because if you think you're something, you're, you don't have that humility about you, you're not going to be an attractive option for someone who's struggling or hurting with sin or has these other issues. Amen? Now, I get a lot of counseling people coming to me, and I don't think it's necessarily because I'm always humble. I think it's because I'm the pastor and I get paid to do it. Right? Stop! You know? Sometimes I think I'm something. Do we not all think this at times? It's natural. It's normal. It's not of the Spirit. But ask yourself that. What type of person am I? Am I one who projects that I'm something, or am I one who projects that I'm nothing, especially apart from grace in Christ? It's a great test, but I think we would all answer that question. Well, I would want the second believer to come talk to me. If, If I'm in sin, I want that guy or gal to come talk to me. I want that one who's gentle. I want that one who's meek. I want that one who's gracious, that one who's merciful. I want Bruce Filbran. Amen? Yeah? I don't want Paul Rogers. I don't want Phil Baker. No, I'm kidding. Paul was pretty gracious. I'm kidding. He was very gracious. But I tend not to be at times. Sometimes sin annoys me. Amen. I just get annoyed with people's sin. I'm like, why do you do that? You're stupid. Thank you for the counseling. I'll find another church. <laughs> you know, it's like, and that's just a lack of patience, and that's an inflated view that I have of myself at times. If I'm short and impatient, then I'm not where I need to be. You know, I'm not where I need to be. If we find ourselves in a situation where we feel led to restore a sinning brother or sister, we need to perform a self-check to make sure that we are in step with the Spirit, right? We talked about this over and over last week. If we are humbly aware of our own need of grace, then it certainly seems that we are in step with the Spirit and should proceed. You, you know, and you know that you need grace, and you know that that sinning brother or sister needs grace, and you're determined to go give them as much grace as you possibly can. That's the right attitude, and that means that you're in step with the Spirit because that is the Spirit's work in you. And yet, if we are pridefully unaware of our own need of grace, we are being led by our flesh. We need to deal with the log in our own eye. We keep in step with the Spirit when we remain humbly aware of our own need of grace. Let's move to Paul's sixth point. Six, we keep in step with the Spirit when we test our own work rather than criticize the work of others. Verse 4, he says it like this, But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. It almost sounds like he's saying, it's okay, take a little pride in what you do. That's not at all what he's saying. Fleshly conceit not only diminishes our awareness of our own needs, our own need of grace and these other things, mercy, it diminishes our awareness of our own deeds it kind of blinds us from our needs and it blinds us from our own deeds we're focused on what that we're focused on that other person's works or deeds not on ours this is what happens fleshly conceit keeps us from seeing our own work especially the sinful things that we do how how does it do this by steering our attention away from ourselves onto our neighbors those who are in our geographical sphere those who are nearby our church family, and anyone else who's nearby. Fleshly conceit just keeps us focused on what they are doing, and it puts us into a kind of evaluation mode where we are constantly testing their work, their deeds, what they say, what they do, how they carry themselves, the conduct, just about everything about them whenever we're exposed to them. And when their work, their deeds, their words, and whatever it is that they're doing, when those things that they're all about and doing don't meet our self-righteous expectations, we criticize their deeds, and we even sometimes boast about how sinful they are. This happens here. We're constantly testing the work of others, seldom testing our own work. We become experts in what everyone else is doing and complete buffoons when it comes to testing our own stuff. This is fleshly conceit. You see, the Spirit will produce an awareness of yourself more so than an awareness of others. In fact, the Spirit really is not going to distract you with what everyone else is doing. He is going to help you focus on you. It's the flesh that causes us to focus on everyone else and to pick them apart and to criticize their efforts or works. Guilty, I do this from time to time. To even boast about someone's sinful works and deeds. Again, did you see what Fred did? Can you believe it? I can't believe he went outside of his marriage. And that would come as a surprise if you knew Fred well, but I mean, these things happen. Sometimes we learn things about people that we were close to that makes us feel like we were never close to them. I must not have known Fred very well. The wrong response in those scenarios is flesh and criticism and, well, you know, sometimes we even push it further and say, I don't even think that person's a believer, right? And they worshiped alongside of you for eight years, and then they did one ridiculously terrible thing, maybe like King David. I wonder how many people in the kingdom of Israel wondered if David was actually a believer after they discovered what he was doing. How do you sleep with another man's wife, get her pregnant, and try to hide it by murdering her husband? That sounds like the devil. I don't think he was a believer at all, and yet he was a man after God's own heart. What? Does that mean I can sin like that, be a man after God's own heart? That's not what made him a man after God's own heart. It was his repentance and his ability to come back to where he should be, which was a spirit-indwelt reaction to those things, even though it might have taken a little bit of time. Yet the believer who is in step with the Spirit is humbly aware of his or her own deeds. They're always aware of their own deeds. They're always measuring and evaluating what they do and say. And when what they do and say doesn't measure up to God's standard, it doesn't. it's not pleasing to Him, it's not in step with the Spirit, it grieves them. They're not overly concerned about the neighbor. They're slightly underly concerned about themselves because I don't think any of us hit the mark 100% on that, but they are concerned about themselves. They are aware of what they are doing. And the more aware you become of who you are on the inside with the thoughts and and the motives and all these sorts of things, and then just the behavioral things that are just dastardly, the more you come. I, I'm convinced that Christian maturity isn't measured by how much Bible you know. If, you know, you're a 10-point Calvinist, you added five more points, you know, right? Because I'm just like, I am John Calvin's ghost, you know? it It, it doesn't to me, yeah, spiritual maturity isn't measured by how much you know or, or any of that. It's, it, it is measured by how much you know, by how much you know of yourself and your need of grace. To me, that is spiritual maturity. When you grow in your awareness of how dastardly you are and how much you need God's grace, to me, that is a mark of maturity. It is. When you inflect, when you look inside, when you, not inflect, but when you look inwardly and and you realize nothing good dwells in my flesh. It is an idle factory, right? And and I long for the day for Christ to fully redeem me, to give me a, a new body and all that. To me, that is a brother or sister who is getting to where Christ wants them to be. And for sometimes, for some of us, knowledge and Bible pursuers, we measure our maturity by how much we know and understand and that is not at all. That's a good thing. There's only five points of Calvinism by the way. if you add five more, you got an issue, you need to get on meds. But self-awareness is a mark of the Spirit being there and a mark of maturity and then that need of grace, that ability to test oneself is a mark of maturity. Amen where you get to where, you know, I'm, I'm mostly concerned about me, and not in a selfish way. We're not talking about how many Big Macs you can buy for yourself. We're talking about, you know, yeah, that would be bad. We're talking about you being aware of who you are and your great need of grace. Because you know what? You ought to get to the point where you know you need grace more than anyone else. That's a sign of maturity. It is. You look inwardly and you are saddened by what you discover right the impurity that's there sometimes the sensuality that's there the idolatry and you know the the enmity the the strife the jealousy even these fits of anger that some of us wrestle with. I know I do at times, maybe rivalries in these things, right? These are the works and deeds of the flesh, Galatians 5, 19 to 20. And, and in our old man and in our flesh, they, they still reside there and, they, and they, they rear their ugly heads at times and they just come out of us. And, and we look at it and we say, gosh, what am I? Who will deliver me from this body of death? You get so frustrated. That's his sign, of maturity, When you start to say things like, what a wretched man or woman I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You get so tired of your sin and, and all the, and the, the, the wrong motive and all that, you just, you just scream and cry out like Paul did in Romans 7.24, who will deliver me from this? That's maturity. Maturity is focusing primarily on yourself, as I said, not in a selfish way, but in a self-observant way. You know, it's not that we don't care about the sins of others. We do care about the sins of others because we love people. But we are mostly and ultimately concerned about what we say and do. That's the key. That's the spirit-led person, the person who has more self-awareness than others' awareness. And as I said, we, we typically have more awareness of others than we do self. That's a a fleshly thing that we wrestle with. And when when we evaluate ourselves, because that's the mature spirit thing to do when we do that, and our our works fall short, our deeds, our our words, and and the things that we say when they fall short, what do we do? The spirit-led thing to do, walking in the spirit, you confess. You confess these sins. You call upon the Father for grace in Christ. And when... Our work, if we evaluate and our work proves to be fruitful, it's okay to boast, but we don't boast in ourselves, we boast in Christ who is in us. That's the kind of boasting that Paul is talking about here. He'll have, he have—he looks at his own work, he'll have reason to boast in himself. He's not boasting in himself about himself, he's boasting in himself about Christ in him. That's what Paul's talking about here, friends. We boast about Christ. We boast about the cross. Paul talks about this in Galatians 2.20 and in chapter 6, verse 14. Paul says, when you look and you can see the fruit of the Spirit in your life and in you, it, 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 is, a, it is a happy moment. It is a joyful moment. And in that moment, you glory in Christ and in the cross. That's what Paul says. That's a right response. And yet the fleshly, conceited believer does the exact opposite. He focused primarily on others. He cares about the sins of others way more than he cares about his own sin. In fact, he acts like he doesn't have any sin. He is mostly focused on what others say and do, right, on their work. Very, very critical. He is always evaluating their deeds, always examining. He's like Perot. He's like a a Belgian detective, for crying out loud. He manages to find sin when you didn't even know it was there. I had no idea I was doing that. Thanks for pointing that out. Can you put your microscope away now? And then when this conceited believer, when their work falls short, if if they're able to recognize that at all or if it's pointed out by another loving brother or sister, what do they do? They're quick to criticize. They're quick to boast or they're quick to criticize or quick to deflect. They're quick to flip the script. You ever lovingly called someone out and then they immediately put it on you and they say things like, yeah, but you do this. Yeah, but you do that. That's conceited flesh. I told you a week ago or two weeks ago, my common response to that when somebody does that in a counseling session is, yeah, but we're not talking about me right now. We can talk about me next week if you want to meet with me for counseling. Uh, you can counsel me. We're talking about you and the damage you're doing in the congregation. But that's a, a, a fleshly, conceited deflection you get it spun around on you, and you're the one that's pointed out, and your sins are now exposed in these sorts of things. It's a, it's a, it's a, a bad situation that Paul's talking about here. And, you know, if, they, if the conceited person does self-evaluate and they find that some of their work is fruitful, they boast about what they're doing and what they've done. They don't boast about Christ. It's look at what I did. Look at what I've been doing while comparing yourself to others who aren't hitting the mark according to your standards. That's the fleshly response. So you have a spirit-led response, which is a self-evaluating kind of humble thing, and then you have this fleshly one which doesn't take responsibility and is accusatory and all this other stuff. Let's create another scenario. Two believers, again, catch you in a transgression One is fleshly and likes to focus on others. He criticizes what they do, and he boasts about his own deeds. The other believer, however, focuses on himself and is always testing their own work. They rarely criticize the misdeeds of others, and they do speak quite often about their own failings, right? He rarely, if ever, boasts about anything, but when he does, it's about Christ in him and the work that God is doing through him or her. Now, again, which... Believer, would you rather deal with? The conceited one who thinks there's something and or this humble one who is always testing. And do you want somebody who puts you under a microscope, or do you want the other one? Who's gonna be more gracious? Who's gonna be more gentle with you? Which guy or gal? The first one or the second one? The second one, obviously, right? Now, if we find ourselves in a situation where we feel led to restore a sinning brother or sister, again, we perform a self-check to make sure that we're in step with the Spirit. If we test ourselves and find that we tend to focus on ourselves and test our own work for failure or fruit, then we're in step with the Spirit. I mean, we should proceed if that's who we are, but if we prefer to focus on others and are in the habit of criticizing their work and maybe being led by our flesh, eh, it's time for get the log cabin out of our own eye and not go and bother that sinning brother or sister when we're not qualified to do that. We need to be addressed. We keep in step with the Spirit when we test our own work rather than criticize the work of others. Let's move to the seventh point. We keep in step with the Spirit when we bear our own load. Verse 5, this is really, really big. He says it like this, for each will have to bear his own load. Just an interesting thing for him to say right after he said, make sure that you bear each other's burdens. Some commentators say, well, there's a contradiction here. Why is he telling us to bear one another's burdens? And now he's saying everyone needs to bear their own load. Well, there's no contradiction. It's the right way to interpret the passage. In verse 2, Paul exhorted us to bear one another's burdens, which has to do with helping a repentant brother or sister, get their life back together and and reach full restoration, right? The exhortation in verse 2, it denotes corporate responsibility. That's what verse 2 is about. It is every believer's responsibility to help restore fallen brothers and sisters. This is our work as a church it may be that this happens in our congregation and one or two brothers or sisters help a person, and that's fine. The whole church doesn't have to show up at the counseling session, but the idea in verse 2 is that it's a corporate exercise. The whole church bears the responsibility of helping brothers and sisters who fall into sin and helping to restore them. Keep in mind that brothers, fallen brothers and sisters are not restored by other, another brother or sister. They're restored by their churches. Amen. I I can't just restore someone who, you know, destroys their life and marriage. It's not just up to me to do that. The whole elders have to get on board with that. Everyone who's been touched by that has to get on board with that. The whole church has to rally to the side of that repentant brother or sister. So in verse 2, Paul is talking about corporate responsibility. It's our work as a church You think of it like this, we're all on the same same team here, right? So that means that we all must care for each player. We are all in the same platoon, therefore we all must care for each soldier. It's not just the elder's job, not just the pastor's job. All of us do this for one another, As I said, individual believers do not restore sinning brothers and sisters. They might in some scenarios, like if it's between them, but for the most part, it's the work of the church to bring restoration to fallen brothers and sisters, especially when it's a really, really big sin and something that's caused a lot of damage. Now, after exhorting us to help bear the burdens that are caused by our sinning but now repentant brothers and sisters in verse 2, Paul immediately adds another exhortation here in verse 5. What does it denote? Personal responsibility, not corporate, personal. Corporate's in verse 2. In verse 5, it's personal responsibility. What is he doing here? He is aiming his exhortation in verse 5 at the repentant brother or sister who is seeking restoration. Why? Because he knows how easy it is for believers to become apathetic and lazy, especially when it comes to cleaning up their own messes. Right? That's what he's saying here. Look, you created this huge mess through your sin. Don't default to the church to fix your mess. You fix your mess. You go through the process. You do the hard work of bearing that burden, and the church will come alongside and help you. But don't you think that, you know, okay, well, they're fixing my stuff. No, 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 no. That's not the right way to think about it. Believers must take responsibility for their sin. They must deal with the messes that their sin and their loose life created. Sin creates burdens for the individual who sins and it creates burdens for everyone else. It is the responsibility of that believer to rectify that and fix that. They can get help from the church, that's the bearing of the burden part, but they need to bear the load they created. That's what Paul is saying. The church is simply there to help. The church is not there uh, It's there to help bear the burden. It is not there to bear their load for them. It's there to, to hold the repentant brother or sister up as they bear their own load. It is not there to bear the load itself. What you've done in your life with your sin that's caused a lot of damage is not my responsibility. That's not my load to bear. You have to bear that but I'm here to help you with it. It's almost like with with Moses and Aaron on one side and they're holding his arms up as the armies of Israel are fighting. We hold each other up, but we must take responsibility for our own sin. And we live in a culture today that says, do not take any responsibility for your sin. Don't pay your college debt. Don't pay your debt to society through your crime and what you've done. We'll let you out early for good time, Prison reform, just let them out. That's prison reform today, right? We live in a culture that has no concept of bearing responsibility. It's moving further and further away from from the epicenter of of personal responsibility. And Paul is saying here, look, the church bears a responsibility to help, but it doesn't bear your load. You bear your load. You fix your mess. The church can help you, but you are responsible for what you've done. And that's just not the direction of our society, which bleeds into the church and causes Christians who get themselves involved in stuff to be very lazy and apathetic and to sit back and go on to cruise control while others go around with a pooper scooper and clean up their mess, fix the relationships they destroyed. It's not right. It's very, very sinful to negate your responsibility to bear your own load. Christians today, they want to take their load and put it on the backs of everyone else No, you have to bear it. You have to bear it. Think about it like this. The load is a consequence of behavior. If someone other than the person who created the load bears the load, how is the person who created it ever going to learn from their experiences? I just don't want them to suffer. They need the spice of suffering. They need to feel the sting of what they've done or else they're not going to learn from it. We go around fixing everyone and fixing their stuff all the time. People don't learn. That's what our government is trying to do today, is to fix everyone and to be everyone's God and parent. And we don't want to get in the business of doing this. How is somebody who doesn't bear their own load, somebody's carrying it for them, how are they going to grow in experiential knowledge and wisdom, how are they going to grow and learn to fear the Lord if they don't bear the consequence of their poor sinful decisions? If the church bears their load, the brother or sister will not learn to take sin seriously. The load is a consequence. If somebody else bears it, they're not going to bear the consequence and learn from that bearing another believer's load by doing all the work for them, by doing everything for them. Well, it's my service to the Lord. No, you're making a big mistake. But when you do this, what you're essentially doing is sparing, it's like sparing the sinning child the rod of discipline, which makes you a willful party to their destruction. Proverbs 19.18. Now, Fleshly conceit says, I want them to bear the load, and I want that load to be so heavy it crushes them because I don't like what they did. That's a wrong response. That's fleshly conceit. I want them to feel the sting of their poor decisions, but I also want to be there for them to support them and help them make better decisions and to work through this process of restoration. That's the right attitude. That's the person who's walking with the Spirit. But I'll tell you, this... This whole idea of not bearing our own loads, it's a, it's a huge problem in the church today. I and mean, Paul is not just exhorting the repentant brothers and sisters to take responsibility and bear their own load. He is warning them not to push their load onto the shoulders of other believers. And that is what is a huge problem today in the church. It's the idea of, 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 of shoving all my stuff and all my travail and everything onto the backs of everyone else. That's a big problem in the church today. Think about it for a moment here. Do we not all have stuff that we're dealing with? Hmm? We all have our own burdens. We all have our own loads to bear. And some of these loads that we're bearing aren't loads that we created through ridiculous, sinful behavior. They're just, you know, it's the load of daily life. And some of us are bearing heavier loads than others, right? Not all of us are bearing the exact same load. Some people's loads that they're bearing are, you know, we look at it and go, you call that a load? (laughs) That's a shovel, pal. I got a dump truck. That's flesh. I mean, we all have, you know, we have health issues. That's kind of a load of marital issues at times. That's a load, you know, family issues, job issues, sin issues, church issues, societal issues, right? There's no You know, we have an abundance of cultural and societal issues these days. This stuff never stops, it just never ends. Amen. And the minute that your load starts to feel a little lighter, all of a sudden life throws a pallet of bricks on you. Boom. Carry this for a while, pal. Amen. Sometimes the load we bear feels so heavy, it's just too much to bear and we feel that it's going to crush us and we get anxious and and scared and anxious and, and filled with dread and fear and we start saying to ourselves I don't know how I'm going to get out of this and right this happens I mean this is this is the bane of human existence this is all of us but do you know what doesn't help what is absolutely fleshly in this instance? Complaining about it all the time. Mm. Non stop complaining about your load, about your burdens. Or how about uh, sometimes it comes in the form of complaining or it comes in the form of a fake prayer request, but you're just determined to tell everybody about your load. Hmm? The way Christians have learned to try to get away with this is by saying things like, you know what, I've got something for you. Fred, I know you've, you've been restored in the church. I'm using Fred again. But I've got something that I, I need to just, you need to pray for this. And then brrr, there's an entire newspaper's worth of drama. And then Fred walks away going, I have no idea what just happened. I think I'm going to go back to the bar. You know, telling everybody about your load. I remember hearing a message one time by Chuck Swindoll. It was on the radio, and I was driving to Costco, and I was listening to it, and he was talking about complaining in the church. and He might have been talking about the bearing burden part here in Galatians. I don't know where he was in the Scripture, but he was talking about how this older lady kept complaining to everyone in the congregation about her back pain and I thought you know what's he gonna do man is he you know I mean he was like he started yelling like woman stop complaining to everyone about your back you know and blah 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 and I was just like whoa that just seems so unpastor-like and all that and then like after many years of ministry I'm like yeah stop complaining about your I mean we know we know your back hurts Mine hurts all the time, too, but you never hear me say anything about it. Right? You, you, you see, there's a line you can cross with your complaining and, and your load. And, and you, you know what? When you, when you complain about your load and you're telling everyone around, about it, you're not bearing it yourself. You're trying to get everyone else to do it. Now I was talking to Rachel about this. She goes, yeah, but just the text, just a, a couple verses. This is not really her voice, but uh, a couple verses earlier, it talks about bearing one another's burdens. And I said, wrong! That's not carte blanche to complain endlessly about your stuff to other believers and bog them down when they're already bearing their own load. It is in a particular context that has to do with correcting a sinning brother or sister. That Galatians text has nothing to do with burdening everyone with your burdens. That is sinful. It is. I'm passionate about this because for almost 20 years now, I've been getting, I've been getting people's burdens unleashed on me. And I'm like, I can barely stand. Amen? You feel like that sometimes? Is this fleshly? Yeah bit maybe with the hyperbole, but what are we exhorted not to do in Scripture over and over? Complain. What are we being exhorted to do here? Bear your own load. Complaining doesn't help. You burdening others with your own load when you're supposed to bear your load and I love when we cloak these things in prayer requests really what that believer wants to do is just unleash how bad of a week they had and then hang prayer request on the end because they secretly know it's sinful to endlessly complain about how bad their life is you know every complaint is an attack on God's providential sovereignty every complaint is an attack on the sovereign God every complaint boy if we just thought like that I think we'd stop complaining wouldn't we We're in our circumstances because God is sovereign and providential. He has us bearing these loads for a reason, but we're just trying to get out from under it. Oh, I don't like that. It's an attack on Him. I think complaining is ultimately offensive to God. That's why it's called sin in the Bible. Those of you who have children, if they've reached complaining age yet, You'll know a little bit about what the Lord is experiencing there. When all his children are griping about the load, they don't want to bear. Amen? Yeah, it's weird. They, they, they start off real cute, vipers and diapers, and then they start to turn into the serpent in the garden. They get to a point where all they do is complain about everything, and then they kind of grow out of that and get to a point where they don't want anything to do with you. That's vacation time for us parents. It's just weird. You usually see it at dinner time, right? Oh, I don't want goulash. God sovereignly ordained goulash for tonight. <laughs> eat it with a smile or I'll break your neck. Mm. Just the name. Can we just change the name goulash? That's like, who? you want people to eat that? It's actually really good, though. I, you like goulash, Bruce? <laughs> Somehow I knew you would. So what Paul is doing is he he's not exhorting the repentant to he's saying don't negate your responsibility to bear your own load. You know, here, here's some things that scripture says we're to do, right? Okay? We're not to complain. We know that we're not to be telling everyone about our load all the time. We're not to be burdening others with our stuff. But here is some things that we are exhorted in Scripture to do. Right? Um, We're exhorted to confess our sins to one another, James five sixteen to a or sixteen a. And that text has to do with someone who's sick, and maybe the sickness that they have might be tied to some kind of sin that has made them sick. So there is a specific context there. It's not just like go up to the next believer you, you. you know, you know, and, hey, by the way, I do this. You know, it's like, thank you. I feel my breakfast coming up right now. <laughs> Scripture exhorts us to pray for one another. Same verse, chapter 5, verse 16b. But it, again, it's in a context of sickness and potential healing. <laughs> Scripture exhorts us to bear one another's burdens regarding restoration. Chapter 6, verse 2 of Galatians. Remember the context. It's not just any burden. There's specific To a restoration process. Scripture exhorts us to love one another through humble service. John 13, 34, you know, Jesus washed his disciples' feet, gave them that commandment of love, you know, love one another as I've loved you. Scripture exhorts us to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Hebrews 10, 24. Scripture exhorts us to encourage uh, each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Ephesians 5, 19. Scripture exhorts us to encourage one another and build each other up, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. What I can't find in Scripture is a verse that exhorts us to bog one another down with our load. I can't find it anywhere. I can't find that verse. And as I said, people try to use Galatians 6.2 for that, but it has a context and it has a particular, it has a very narrow meaning when you're restoring a, a brother or sister right, to the congregation, when you're working on that, you help them bear the load. They have, they have a load that they have to carry, but you help, them, you help them with that and you help them succeed. It doesn't have to do with you doing it for them or any sort of just carte blanche complaint department or anything like that. I can just unload. doesn't have anything to do with that. I can, however, find a verse that exhorts us to do the exact opposite of burdening everyone with our load, right? I I see it right here in verse 5. What does it say again? For each will have to bear his or her own load. And you know what? It's not a matter of just bearing the load. It's doing it with grace, with dignity, with holiness, you're called to bear your own load, but to do it with grace, dignity, and holiness, to do it in such a way that it brings God glory. And the complaining and dumping it on everyone else, that, that is sinful. Now, am I saying that you, know, you can never talk to any other believers about your struggles or load? Of course not. You can, but... You know, don't become like the older lady in that sermon script from Swindoll that just every week it was the same old song and dance. Good morning, Mabel. How are you? Well, you know, my back hurts. It's like, oh, Lord, this has been 22 years. Stop. We know. And and you know what happens when, when these, we'll call them load dumpers, when you mix it up with load dumpers you got your own load that you're carrying so what happens you get more stressed out don't you you get more stressed out more worn out and and you know you're already bearing your own burdens some of them are sin induced some of them aren't they're just the burden of life and then when somebody comes with with a you know, with a cachet or a suitcase full of their burdens and they hand it to you and then you're walking around. I mean, just life stinks. I mean, you're not going to be missional. You're not going to be thinking in terms of the mission of the church and me proclaiming the gospel and being a missionary. I'm a baggage handler for baggage, burden-bearing believers at my church. It's not supposed to be that. I'm not supposed to do that. So I can't find any kind of verse that exhorts us to, to dump, you know, dump our load on everyone else. I can't find anything like that. I can find the opposite where you to bear it yourself. I can also find some verses to tell us where to go for help when the load is heavy. Matthew 11, 28 to 29, Jesus said, "'Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest.'" Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle, lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. You might think that that's an evangelistic invitation. It's also for believers who are bogged down with a heavy load. But no, you know what? We get more satisfaction out of like verbal therapy when we dump everything on everyone else. When all we have to do is just close our eyes and go right to the throne of grace and take the burden and put it at His feet. That's what we're supposed to do. But no, it just feels better to talk about it endlessly with people and as if they're not already carrying their own load. Another verse, and, and this is probably the biggest one of all. And, and these are just not practical things because they don't involve other people. I think it's very practical. Do you remember 1 Peter 5.7, what Peter tells the scattered people? persecuted believers who were bearing a massive load in the first century, very heavy, persecution, the works, you name it, they had to deal with it. He says to them, cast all your anxieties on Jesus. Why? Because he cares for you. There's where you take the load. Right to him. Right to him. Look, I say this with love in my heart because we're all guilty of this, including me. We need to stop trying to place our load on the backs of the royal priesthood and go to the throne of grace and put it at the feet of our great high priest, Jesus, because that is where we will find mercy and grace in our time of great need. 1 Peter 2.9, Hebrews 4.14-16. You're carrying a heavy load? I get it. We all are. Maybe your load's a little heavier than mine. Maybe you're dealing with some really difficult things. I'm not trying to dissuade you from seeking prayer from your brothers and sisters, but I am telling you that you have a great high priest who is there. And that's your first, that's where you go firstly. You you don't pick up the phone and start unleashing your problems on someone else who has a, a full schedule of problems. Do you not think that this is a big church and big problem in the church today? I see it as a big problem because even in a small church, church like this, there's just a lot of complaining and a lot of load, you know, attempts to offload the load onto others. And I just think it's sad and it just pulls us off mission. And it's, you know, and, and, you know heaven forbid that you know I would try to download the load I'm bearing onto one of the elders when they all have their. I mean, Bruce just had two surgeries. For crying out loud. If I were to unleash every bit of everything that I'm wrestling with and struggling with and, and going through on him, he'd have a fourth or third and fourth surgery. He'd have a heart replacement. It'd blow him right out. <laughs> Complaining's bad. It's fleshly. I mean, it's just, this is just, it's not the way. It's not what we're to be about. And I feel like we've gotten there and we've forgotten the great high priest and who we're supposed to go to initially and forever. You may not, listen, when you, when you take your load to someone else, you may not get the response you're hoping for. You may get complaining from them, which kind of increases your load. You may not get much empathy. You may get, don't you know what I'm going through? Well, that's not going to make you feel better, right? But if you approach the throne of grace with boldness and go right to the great high priest, Jesus is going to give you exactly what you need, grace and mercy. You may not get that from me. You won't get it from me if you complain to me after this service. You will be contradicting exactly what you... You're not going to get that from me. You're going to get, really? Wow, that went right over your head, didn't it? Bruce, get in here and talk to this person. I'm not saying, don't come to me. I'm just saying, be mindful of what you're saying. Not because I've got a load that I'm bearing, but because there is a way to sin when you're trying to pawn it off on others. Amen? God can help you bear that load. He will. He hasn't put anything on you, that, you know, that, that's beyond His capability to help you carry. Sometimes He does overload us to break us because of our pride. Right, you get smashed under all those pallets, and you're like, "I'm done." Get a little white flag. <laughs> I'm good. I was an idiot. Right. We find ourselves in a situation where we feel led to restore a sinning brother or sister. We need to perform a self-check. You know, we got to make sure that we're in step with the Spirit. If we take responsibility and bear our own load, and go to Jesus when we need help, really, that's the key. Then we are in step with the Spirit, and we should proceed. But if we are in the habit of bogging other believers down with a near-endless barrage of description and complaining about our load, we are essentially shirking our responsibility to personally bear it, and we are not being led by the Spirit in those moments. We are being led by the flesh. We should deal with the log in our own eye. We keep in step with the Spirit when we bear our own load. Let's move to Paul's eighth point. We keep in step with the Spirit when we receive correction and share good things with those who teach us. This is important. Verse six. Paul says, Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Kind of seems like an out of place verse, but it fits perfectly with what's going on here. This exhortation from Paul is also aimed at the repentant brother or sister who is seeking restoration. Why? Because he or she is the one who's being taught the word by that faithful brother or sister who's gently correcting them. And there's an assumption here made by Paul, and that is that the spirit led believer is using Scripture to gently restore a sinning brother or sister. He assumes that they are being taught the word by that faithful brother or sister who's there to love them. What does that assumption from Paul teach us? It teaches us that we better use the word when dealing with the sin of others. Paul assumes it, right? Let the one who's taught. So that brother or sister who's gently correcting, they're using the word to do this. His assumption here tells us that we better use the word, we better use Scripture when it comes to gentle correction. Going into a counseling situation where gentle correction is needed without a Bible is like going into a gunfight without a gun. It's like going fishing without bait. It's like playing tennis without a racket. That doesn't make any sense. The Bible is the Christian's tool of the trade. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. When you've got a Bible with you, you've got everything you need to equip the man of God for every good work, 2 Timothy 3.17. But if you don't have a Bible with you, you've only got you. Now, some of us are very familiar with Scripture. You know, we can cite it verbatim from memory. We can apply verses as we're listening to the plight of someone. We know the verses to go to, and we can apply those verses, right? Some of us are like that, but I say, why take a chance at all? God gave you an ESV sword. Keep it by your side or keep it nearby, but you should be using it in a counseling Context. You may not know this about me, but I took about a six or eight month Christian counseling class many, many years ago. And uh, the instructor, whom I, whom I do care about deeply, she was a, a great gal, uh, but she kept exhorting the class to go to Scripture only after we've gained the trust and friendship of the patient, so to speak you know yeah scripture is an important tool that you can use in christian counseling but you know you you need to make sure that you earn the right to to use scripture so you know you need to wait and and you know don't don't just start with that you know go to that at toward the end or when you feel like you have permission to do it and you know how i am so every time she would say that which was every class i would interject <laughs> teacher I was that kid, you know, teacher, and I would say, um, I'm taking off with the Word. I'm flying with the Word. I'm landing with the Word. How you like that? <laughs> and she's like, you know, you're not going to be a very good Christian counselor <laughs> if you bombard people with the Word like that. And, of course, I would respond, I have no plan to bombard people with the Word. But I don't think you seem to understand that in these counseling scenarios, sometimes you only get one shot at the person. They may never come back, especially if they're dealing with me. (laughs) So I'm going to give them the gospel no matter what. Well, like I said, you might not be, you know, maybe you should stick to preaching and I'm like, are we talking about Christian counseling without the Christian book? I feel like that's where we're at. Well, I wouldn't put it like that, but, and I was like, oh, it literally is Christian counseling without the Bible, which is not Christian counseling. So, you know, I passed the class. I mean, got the diploma, you know, and I've been a dismal failure at counseling for 10 years. <laughs> I just, I couldn't, it just didn't make sense to me that we're, it's, it's Christian counseling. Do you want to just change it to counseling? No, it's Christian counseling. How? We don't use the Bible. Well, you can. You got to get permission. Permission. Can I use the Bible now? No. Speak on. The load's getting heavier and heavier just didn't make any sense. And that kind of describes churches today. The last thing they go to is the Bible. The sermons are 15 minutes long, but they've got 82 songs about how Jesus lets us run free. Paul exhorts the repentant brother or sister. This is the one who's being restored. He exhorts them. He encourages them Those who are taught to share all good things with those who teach them. That Greek word behind the phrase good things is agathos. Paul uses it in Romans 10.5 where he described the good tidings of the gospel. That's the meaning here. Agathos refers to the good things that the gospel brings you know like forgiveness and redemption and transformation and righteousness and holiness and 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 true freedom right because we're not under the law anymore and we're not we're not under our sin anymore we're not under the devil anymore we're not under the world anymore right it's real real liberation real freedom you know you've got sanctification you've got peace with god and peace with man you've got a sense of purpose now. You've got a sense of identity now. You've got a sense of security now. Now you have value that you never had. These are the good things of the gospel. And Paul is saying, share the good things that the gospel is doing in your life with the one who is teaching you. That's what he's saying. Share the transformation. Talk about what the Lord is doing in you. And you know, that's only going to be happening. They're only going to have something to share if you're using Scripture because that's where the power is. That's where the gospel is. The believer who accepts the correction from Scripture, it's it's gentle, it's being given by a person who's walking in the Spirit, but but the believer who, who you know, accepts the teaching and, and shares the good that the gospel is, is doing in their life, that believer is in step with the Spirit. Why is that? Because the Spirit is the one who reveals the gospel and all the good things that are in it, 1 Corinthians 2.10. Literally, when I share the good things that are in the gospel, the Spirit is speaking through me. Closing. I'm going to end quickly with a bonus point. Number nine, this is needed because the scenario we've been studying in Galatians 6, 1 through 6, it describes a repentant brother or sister who is seeking restoration, right? That's the context. What should we do if a brother or sister we seek to gently restore won't repent and won't pursue restoration? How do we deal with that one, right? Because that's not addressed here. Maybe you've been saying to yourself over the course of two weeks, yeah, but you know, I've, I've gone into these scenarios where I've been led by the Spirit and walking by the Spirit, but man, that person was not receptive. They were belligerent. They dug in. They deflected. They blamed me. They blamed others. And, right? Because that happens. I'll tell you what, that happens more than the actual person repenting. In fact, what happens more than anything is people leave the church. That's what happens. What do you do when you go to them and you're gentle and and you're you're, you're in step with the Spirit in all these ways? You've tested yourself and and you're ready to go and you go to them. What if they downplay their sin? What if they dismiss you? How do you deal with that? What if they make up excuses and blame others? Because that happens all the time. If I had a dollar for every time that happened, I'd be going to space with Captain Kirk. (coughs) Seriously. Are there steps we can take after Right? When, when this happens and it, it doesn't work out, they're not they're like, eh, you don't know what you're talking about, you're an idiot, because that happens. What do we do? Number nine, we keep in step with the Spirit when we follow the steps in Matthew 18, 15-17, regarding the unrepentant brother or sister. That's the church discipline text. Step one, in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother." That's really what Paul is talking about here in Galatians 6, 1 through 6. Here's what you do when they reject you. Step 2, verse 16, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So, what's the first thing you do? If they're like, no, I don't think so, I'm not changing, I'm not repenting, You're, you're off your rocker, you don't know what you're talking about, what you do is you... Leave that meeting graciously, and you find some other brothers and sisters that can go into another meeting with you and back you up, and maybe they can even provide some examples of what that brother or sister, sinning brother or sister has been doing. So you go and get others. You get others involved. That's the second step. The third step, verse 17a, we're talking Matthew 18 here. You brought witnesses now. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Whoa. So you're saying that I have a situation here. It's not working out between me and that sinning brother. I bring others in. If we're all rejected, then I'm to go before the church and tell the church, yes. What do you think is going to happen then with that sinning brother that he knows that his sin is now going to be shared with the whole church. He's either going to straighten up real quick and repent, or he's going to leave the church. And then there is a fourth and last step, 17b. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. You know what that is? That's excommunication. That's their removal, and the church has nothing to do with them. Even when that person is a family member, a blood relative, and you're part of the same church, and they go off their way, your church membership supersedes your family connection. Because if you are a member of this church, and you continue on with that person, they're not going to come to repentance. The idea of somebody being excommunicated is they begin to realize everything that they've lost. How can they begin to realize what they've lost if family members stay connected to them all the time and act like nothing's wrong? We've had scenarios like this playing out. We have one right now, but not really because they chose to leave the church, so how can they be under discipline when they chose to leave? It's a different situation which requires additional wisdom. It doesn't really fit here. I get that. But for the most part, the end result is excommunication not because we hate them, not because we dislike them, but because we're hoping and praying that them being disconnected from the fellowship and from the constant teaching, the constant fellowship, the constant prayer, the constant sharing of the loads, and everything else that they on the outside start to come to their senses, they realize what they've lost. And that maybe the Spirit works in them in those situations to bring them some conviction and then they want to do the right thing. But I'll tell you what, that is a, that's a miracle, I think, when that happens. Because people get so hardened in their flesh that I know that if I went back, I would look like a fool, so I'm not going to do that. That's what they say. Well, you know what? If we're a walking in the Spirit as a congregation, we're not going to make them feel like a fool, are we? No, we're not. No, we're not. We're going to treat them gently and kindly. And we're going to help bear the burden that they created. That's what we're to do. You're in step with the Spirit. when We are in step with the Spirit when we follow the steps in Matthew 18. God put that text right in there in that gospel so that we would know how to deal with sinning brothers and sisters who refuse to repent. And churches don't do a very good job of following that today because they don't want to lose people. Well, sometimes you have to lose people. That's God's will. Maybe sometimes the losing of them isn't an actual long-term losing. They eventually come back because they realize how good they had it with that congregation and with those loving people.